States, there are presidential elections every four years, but in between those, every two years, there are midterm elections, thus called because they're held about midway through a president's term in office, that determine the fortunes of all 435 seats of the House of Representatives and either 33 or 34, depending on the election, of the 100 total seats in the U.S. Senate and the House and Senate are the two bodies that make up the U.S. Congress. At these same midterm elections, 34 of the 50 total U.S. states elect their governors, all but Vermont and New Hampshire, for four-year terms. Those two states elect for only two-year terms. And many states also load the ballots with elections for state legislature, also called General Assembly, positions. Alongside those larger candidate-focused races, there are also smaller government office elections, so treasurer, sheriff, things like that, and citizen initiatives, sometimes called state ballot measures, which cover issues like the legalization of various currently illicit substances, decisions on new taxes, voting-related issues, and other things of that nature. On top of all that, there are also sometimes special elections for senators, governors, or other folks who are either only elected for a couple of years at a time, as is the case in Vermont and New Hampshire, or to fill a seat if said seat has been cleared recently by a scandal or death or other seat-vacating event. So these midterms are a pretty big deal in the sense that they determine a lot of the nuts and bolts operation of individual states in particular, and because of how state operations go on to influence national happenings. And this is more directly the case for those congressional seats, as those congresspeople actually go to work in Congress in Washington, D.C. But it's true of mayors and governors as well, as they can choose to support or not support federal-level proposals. Despite that fundamental importance to the functionality of government, including a whole lot of very practical outcomes of how governance is conducted, though, voter turnout for midterm elections tends to be substantially lower than voter turnout for presidential elections. Now, I should note, to be clear here, this is the case in the United States, which lags significantly behind other comparable democracies in terms of voting age population turnout in general. Looking at the 2020 presidential election, for instance, which saw significant turnout from both major parties and independent voters, the U.S. ranked 31st out of 50 Democratic countries tracked, right between Colombia and Greece on that list. Only about 62.8% of possible voters turned out for that election, which was a high number relative to other presidential elections in the country. Compare that with the 94.9% who showed up for Uruguay's 2019 election, the 80.3% that voted in Sweden's recent 2022 election, and the 76.7% that cast ballots in South Korea's 2022 election, and you can see that the U.S.'s turnout doesn't rank terribly well internationally. A whole lot of Americans who can vote do not vote. That said, the U.S. outperforms every other tracked democracy in terms of registered voter turnout. So there's a number of people who are qualified to vote, which is where the U.S. lags, but then there's the number of people who register to vote and then show up, 
on election day, or who cast their votes early via some other legal mechanism. In that latter case, the U.S. does great, first of all the countries on that list of 50 nations, with a 94.1% turnout. But again, that's for presidential elections. The 2018 midterm election saw a record number of possible voters show up, with about 50% of the total eligible population casting a ballot. The numbers are still rolling in for the recent 2022 midterms, but the best estimates right now suggest that we'll hit maybe 46.9%, a significant drop, if still higher, than every other 21st century midterm thus far, most of which have hovered in the high 30s to low 40s range. What I'd like to talk about today are the results of the recent 2022 U.S. midterms and what they seem to portend about what'll happen next in U.S. politics. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Going into the 2022 U.S. midterms, which were held on November 8th, but which began a bit earlier in some regions that offered early voting options, and which are still ongoing in some regions, as of the day I'm recording this, for reasons I'll get into shortly, going into this series of local elections, the vibe, as it came to be known, was firmly on the side of Republicans. There were a lot of reasons to trust this vibe, as first of all, the sitting president's party almost always loses a whole lot of seats in Congress, and at the local level, two years into their governance, in part because anything bad that happens during that two-year period is blamed on the president and their party, sometimes rightly, often at least partially wrongly. But that's how these vibes work either way. It's as much about emotional response to negative things that have happened recently as any kind of rational justification. Thus, if the Republicans have one of their people in office, a war overseas or inflation, gas prices, failing schools, crime, whatever, tends to be blamed on their party, and the Democrats will tend to pick up several Senate seats, and often several dozen, minimum, seats in the House as a consequence of that blame. They will also typically pick up a bunch of mayorships and governor positions and a slew of other lower-level officer positions throughout the country as well. The opposite is also true. Democrats tend to suffer heavy losses when their person is in office, and that's the case right now, with Democrat Joe Biden just coming around the bend of his first two years as president. So the tea leaves were not favorable structurally because of how this almost always turns out. The Dems were expecting somewhere between a minor and major bloodbath for their people based on that trend alone, and the Republicans expected the same. Supporting that vibes-based prediction were a bunch of numbers that seemed to suggest Republicans would do even better than usual this election season. Because, it was speculated, Biden had gotten out over his skis, passing a bunch of legislation that funneled government money into the economy, beginning with a major infrastructure bill shortly after he took office, culminating with the recent Inflation Reduction Act, which has little to do with inflation, at least immediately and directly, but a lot to do with building out more infrastructure and investing in climate-related incentives and systems, and a flurry of smaller but also impactful efforts in between related to the economy and to the pandemic, mostly. Inflation levels globally are sky high, 
So this is not a U.S.-only thing, but inflation rates in the U.S. have been disconcertingly potent and consistently upward trending. And that's led to super high prices at the grocery store, at the gas pumps, and at times in Americans' monthly rental payments. The real estate market has been weird. The car and computer markets, both of which touch a lot of other industries and are important to the American economy, have been jittery, shooting up and down seemingly randomly. And the job market has been stubbornly good, which is normally a positive thing, but which in the context of heightened inflation is generally considered to be not ideal, as it means Fed efforts to chill the economy out are not working as anticipated. And as a consequence of that seeming economic resilience, the Fed has been pumping the brakes harder and harder in order to temper those ever-rising inflation rates. So a mixed bag, in a way, economically, as the economy by most measures is actually very, and by some metrics, historically strong. And though you can't attribute that sort of thing to just the sitting president, many people tend to do so anyway. But at the same time, we've got crazy inflation rates and weird employment situations, stressful price increases, and all sorts of other bizarreness, none of which is comforting to the everyday person, even in normal, non-pandemic, non-land war in Europe times. It was also suspected that the recent victory of the previous Trump administration to load up the Supreme Court with overtly conservative justices, which then led to a bunch of heavily right-leaning, history-making rulings, including the dissolution of Roe v. Wade, which had legalized abortion at the federal level, it was thought that victory would keep the evangelicals and other right and far-right mostly Christian voters happily coming back out to the polls, as the taste of victory is often good for enthusiasm. Many of those assumptions, though, as it turns out, were not aligned with reality. And interestingly, the much-maligned U.S. midterm polling apparatus, which asks representative groups of Americans what they think about various subjects, seems to have captured the actual reality of how things would turn out pretty well, though the blended polls that made use of overtly and subtly conservative-biased figures alongside the more unbiased ones did less well as they weighed the numbers in favor of Republicans. But the ones lacking that right-leaning influence were fairly accurate this election cycle. The dominant journalistic narrative that took over, though, seemed to rely more on those blended polls and the aforementioned vibes, discussing the election as if a red wave of Republican voters was nearly inevitable, and as if Democrats would be even more overwhelmed than the incumbent party is usually overwhelmed at this point in a president's term. It would be a bloodbath, a red tsunami. Instead of that, we saw something that various publications have instead referred to as a red ripple, or even a red trickle. Not a blowout for either party. And the Republicans did capture a bunch of new seats, especially in the House. But Democrats also overperformed compared to those expectations. And consequently, though they lost seats and the Republicans gained seats, this is generally being seen as a victory for Democrats, to the point where Joe Biden, who is waiting till after the results to announce one way or the other, has now said, all but officially, that he intends to run for president again in 2024. The results of this midterm were broadly seen as an indicator of what Biden's future prospects might be, and the signal was solid enough that he and his team felt confident in saying more clearly than before that he was intending to run, even if he wouldn't make a final formal declaration till 2023. 
all of which tells you something about how good this outcome was for Democrats, all things considered, compared to the expectations. A few other points worth making here about how the midterms played out in 2022. There were concerns that there might be widespread violence at the polls, especially considering how much intimidation and violence there was during the 2020 presidential elections, with some ardent Trump supporters in particular hurling threats against everyone from poll workers to opposition candidates. But that didn't happen. There were a few isolated incidents, but nothing major, and nothing that wasn't easily handled by the officials on site. There weren't any large-scale disruptions of any kind, in fact, and though there were some technical flubs, including a relatively minor ballot submission issue in Arizona that some ardent election deniers have latched onto, with middling results so far as a potential scandal that they can fan into something bigger, but overall things seemed to go almost boringly smoothly in this election. And even election denial, more broadly, seems to have become less trendy in 2022, as most of the folks who were pitching these claims almost enthusiastically leading up to the vote dropped their claims after the results started rolling in. Some because they won, for obvious reasons, but many after they lost, too. Maybe they read the writing on the wall on this issue, maybe they just didn't have anything to latch on to, because things seemed to go so very by the book, election-wise. In either case, that concern didn't turn into anything big either, at least so far. And that feeds into another seeming change in the wake of this anticipated but mostly failed red tide of votes. The Republican Party, not having achieved their assumed massive level of success, has turned pretty hard against former President Trump, blaming him for, among other things, hand-selecting and supporting a lot of candidates that have generally been seen as weak candidates, like the TV personality Dr. Oz, who lost a highly visible, very important and expensive race in Pennsylvania that seemed early on to be an easy win for any Republican who might run for the seat, while also focusing the party's attention on what they now call outdated issues. Trump's claims of vote rigging, for instance, now seem like a weight around the party's ankles, rather than a motivating force bringing angry voters out to the polls. That seeming pivot away from Trump, and I say seeming here because despite how aligned and choreographed this move from within the Republican Party and its external support systems like Fox News and other Murdoch-owned properties seems to be, there's always a chance that Trump will flip the party's narrative back in his favor, as he has several times before. But this seeming pivot aligns with another fairly overt repositioning for the Republicans, reframing Trump as the guy who led the party down a bad path, the source of all this failure, while current Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's fresh off a massive re-election victory in his home state, pulling in nearly 60% of the vote compared to his Democratic opponent's 40%, he is being pushed out ahead of the pack as the most likely 2024 Republican Party-supported candidate. Now, any or all of that could change depending on how cleanly this pivot is made by the Republican establishment, how well most people fall into line with that new messaging, and what kind of fight Trump puts up in order to retain his stranglehold on all that political power. 
It could be that he's happy to adopt this new strategy as a venerated kingmaker, retiring from office but using his influence for other purposes and in other ways. Though he could also lash out, creating a schism in the party that maybe lasts long enough to hurt Republicans in the upcoming 2024 presidential election. It's really difficult to say which direction things will swing at this point. But the sudden change in messaging, all with a fairly consistent Trump did this to us, it's time to move on angle to it, suggests that they may actually push hard on this this time and might be willing to suffer some short-term losses in order to reposition the party away from the MAGA model into a still very conservative but less flamboyant about it approach one less focused on revenge narratives and conspiracy theories, and more focused on the more traditional conservative lawmaker mold that DeSantis has been demonstrating, and to great ballot box success down in Florida. Also worth noting here, pro-choice abortion measures seemed to do very well in this election, and the right to an abortion has been formalized in five new states, failing only in Kentucky this time around. Marijuana legalization was a mixed bag with nay votes in three conservative states, but yes votes legalizing the drug in Maryland and Missouri. Three states opted for additional restrictions on voting, and two voted to expand voter access to more people. Minimum wage measures did pretty well, though a few of the counts on such measures are still outstanding as of the day I'm recording this. And four states voted to prohibit slavery as a punishment, while Louisiana, unnervingly, did not vote to do so. Though apparently the person who sponsored the Louisiana amendment asked people to vote against it so he could bring another, better written amendment to the vote next time around. And these prohibitions, it should be noted, do apply to slavery in the traditional sense, but are also generally seen as a shot across the bow of laws that allow prisons to use prisoners as low or non-paid labor in many parts of the United States. As of the day I'm recording this, the weekend before this episode goes live, the House looks almost certain to be taken by Republicans. The Democrats currently hold it, so the House would be flipped, though they're not expected to take it by much, and the Senate is up for grabs. The Senate election in Nevada still hasn't been counted for normal, this is just how things work in that state, reasons. And the Democrats and Republicans have 49 confirmed Senate seats apiece, based on currently counted votes. Republicans need 51 seats to run the Senate, while Democrats only need 50 because the vice president, who is a Democrat right now, serves as the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. So if the Democrats win Nevada, which is a distinct possibility, they will hold the Senate. If the Republicans win Nevada, a runoff in Georgia that is being held because neither senatorial candidate there got 50% of the vote, that will determine who runs the Senate for the upcoming session. And that runoff in Georgia will take place the first week of December. There's a good chance some currently unresolved elections, including that Senate election in Nevada, will be officially called by the time this episode lands. So Georgia could be a relative non-issue by the time you hear this, or it could be a hotbed for election funding and messaging for the next month, similar to what happened in 2020, because whoever wins will control the Senate. Now, the Republicans taking even just the House is a pretty big deal. And again, that seems almost certain at this point, as it means the Democrats, whether they have the Senate or not, won't be able to get much legislating done. The Republicans of modern times have been fairly obstructionist as a strategy, which typically means they just don't let the Democrats pass much of anything. 
unless there's something really juicy and outsized for them included in what's passed. And generally, for a lot of major decisions, both houses of Congress need to approve what is being proposed. If the Republicans take both houses of Congress, they're even more capable in that regard and gain additional powers in terms of investigating Democrats and Democratic interests, embarrassing the president, and things like that. It levels up their obstructionist powers while also allowing them to spark more of their own projects and adventures. Lacking a supermajority in these houses, they won't be able to do much of anything on their own because President Biden could just veto anything that they pass that he doesn't like. Presidents tend not to like to veto tons of stuff if they can avoid it, but if forced, he almost certainly would. Which is one way they could embarrass him, by making it look like he is the one keeping anything from getting done. Everything they put forward, he vetoes. At the moment, then, the major takeaways from these midterm elections are that the Republicans are probably going to need a different message moving forward. DeSantis will likely become the Republican establishment's new white knight, though Trump may make this repositioning difficult on them, depending on all sorts of variables. And Trump has been expected to announce his candidacy for the 2024 presidential election on November 15th, the day this episode goes out. So we will see if anything that's happened with this election influences that choice, which in turn could sway a whole lot of other 2024 lead-up happenings. It could redefine the entire election. Young voters under 30 played a huge role in these midterm results, as did single college-educated women. Both groups voted massively for Democrats, swaying the numbers in meaningful ways across the board. Independents also leaned more leftward in this election, and surveys suggest this is because they were worried about the election-denying, conspiracy-theorizing, resentful party platform the Republicans were favoring under Trump. So that could help the Republicans develop a more broadly palatable winning message for 2024, knowing what to focus on less, at least. Republican House and Senate leaders McCarthy and McConnell are expected to face challenges from Trump-supported further-right congresspeople in their own party, people who will likely have outsized influence on happenings in Congress till the next election cycle because of the moderate wins the Republicans saw this time around. They won't have a major majority in the House no matter what at this point, which means they will need every single vote, including those of these more extreme politicians, which could allow those more extreme politicians to shape more of the party's leadership structure in the short term, because if they don't get what they want, they could threaten to not vote with the rest of the Republicans, which would get rid of their majority. Election deniers who ran for lower office positions like Secretary of State, intending to use those positions to forward their unfounded election denial conspiracies, lost in all swing states, which should make major constitutional disruptions at least in the 2024 presidential election less likely. And there's a chance that Trump decides to really mess with the Republican Party if they turn against him and use him as a scapegoat for their relatively meager performance in the midterms. We're already getting a taste of what he might have in store for them as he begins to name names and apply schoolyard nicknames to many politicians he was supporting mere weeks ago, who seem to be considering turning in the opposite direction away from him at this point. So that could be interesting, but also very uncomfortable for Republican Party establishment players in the coming years. There's a chance the Biden administration could decide to do away with the debt ceiling 
before the Republicans take control of the House, which, again, is not a 100% certainty as of the day I'm recording this, but it's close to that, and most analysts at this point are assuming it's going to happen, though they will not have a very large majority. So getting rid of the debt ceiling would make it more difficult for Republicans to essentially hold the economy hostage to get the things that they want to pass through Biden's veto. Though the concept of killing the debt ceiling has traditionally been unpopular, even though the ceiling is kind of an antique concept, and most countries don't have that kind of thing anymore. So we will see on that. More broadly, beyond the politics of all these politics, a divided government with the president from one party and Congress, at least partially from another, is generally good for business, or at least business owner enthusiasm, as it tends to mean no major new taxes or regulations, because nothing like that can get through. And it would also likely mean no more major climate-related bills or funding, nothing that would require the consent of Congress to make it happen anyway. And some of what's already been passed or decreed could be investigated, symbolically or practically, by Congress as well, so it could then also potentially be torn down by the same group. So there's a lot left to figure out here, but the broad strokes, mostly of a reconfiguring Republican Party and a less capable of acting U.S. government, alongside an almost strangely popular Democratic Party, seem to be already locked in at this point, even if the specifics will take another few days or weeks or months to fully coalesce. <laughs> The book I'd like to recommend today is called How the World Really Works, A Scientist's Guide to Our Past, Present, and Future by Václav Smil. This book is written by an author who I've read before. He's written dozens of books, and he's a very well-informed guy who is ultra-focused on explaining data and collecting that data in the first place, but then noticing patterns in the data and trying to derive meaning from it. And he has some very strong opinions derived from those patterns that he sees, and I don't agree with all of them, but all of his opinions do tend to be derived from very good numbers collected in legitimate ways. And this book gets into a whole lot of different aspects of how the world works today and is thus a very good baseline for understanding how the current international system, inclusive of a great many things, all fits together and why it works the way that it does, or in some cases, doesn't work as well as it should. This is not a cakewalk book. It is a little bit dense with information, as his books tend to be, including numbers and other such data, but it's actually a lot more readable than some of his other books, which read more like textbooks. So if you're looking for an entry point to this type of information, this is a very good option. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of How the World Really Works by Václav Smil. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and at Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.